Well, if you can't find this episode of Who's Round, um, try looking in your lunchbox. Uh-oh. We're in a crypt, uh, and this is delightful. Uh, I'm meeting another member of the Doctor Who cast, and we have uh, one of his co-stars with me as well, who is welcome to chip in, although he's being... Because I've already grilled him uh, in a Who's Round that you will have heard before this one. Uh, but uh, my latest interview, I'm going to ask him who he is and uh, why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, my name is Andrew Staines. I come of a theatrical family. I've been involved in theatre all my life. Well, I did until my health gave way some 15 years ago. Um, and I was in Doctor Who four times, once with Paddy Troughton and the other times with John Poetry. And we've just had a little look at a few clips, and um, The Enemy of the World uh, has only relatively recently been returned to the archives. So um, what was it like seeing that bit of black-and-white history? Mm-hmm. Very weird, very weird indeed. But uh, what, what brings back particular memory, it was supposed to be set in Australia. And I rather fancied my Australian accent. I'd been working with an Australian actor in rep the year before. And he t- said he'd taught me the trick. You'd stop moving your upper lip. But when, when we saw the, uh, the f- footage... In moments of extreme excitement, I dropped back to RP and it was rather noticeable. And it taught me a lesson about an accent that was acceptable on stage would not be acceptable in front of a camera. And um, you were accompanied by a genuine Australian there, weren't you? Elliot Cairns, he was an actual Aussie or your senior guard. Yes, yes. Um, I don't remember a great deal about him except that he... He was very unsure of himself, and there was another bloke playing another guard who didn't have anything to say, but was a, a stirrer, and went around making bitchy remarks. And as I could see what he was doing, they made me roar with laughter. But Cairns got terribly upset because this bloke said to him, you're Australian now, you didn't go to drama school, did you? Cairns said no, and the bloke said, yes, it shows. It's not very nice. Well, I don't know if uh, the history books, according to the history books, you uh, playing your part, I don't know if you were a replacement for an actor originally cast, and that was Terence Donovan, who was the father of Jason Donovan, who was an Australian. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I did not know that. I knew I was a replacement. I had a tendency to be... I think Barry was very wary of using me for fear of, of being accused of nepotism because he was my uncle, literally. But he, he tended to sh- call on me at like, short notice when people dropped out, and that was one of the times. Uh, but he was an uncle with uh, much of an age? I mean, much of an age? He was 13 years my junior. 13. I senior. Um, and so you came from a, 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 an acting, well, a theatrical, uh, an entertainment background, so was it always going to happen? No, it wasn't. Um, I can tell you a funny story apropos of that. Mm that I was in rep at Derby in 1960s. 
And um, a bloke came over at weekends, stage manager, because his girlfriend was in the company. And it turned out he was doing that year's York Mystery Plays. Now, I'd been in the York Mystery Plays when they were first revived in 1951. And um, I played Pilot's Son that first year. Played Simon and Cyrene the second time they did it. Anyway, this bloke turned up. And, the, and he told me that that's what he was doing. He was, he was stage managing the mystery plays. So I said, all right, when you go back, John DeLittle will be playing Pilot, Reggie Dench will be playing Annis, John Kay will be playing Caiaphas, da-da-da-da, and I went through a whole list of people who sort of, by then, had got droit de seigneur on certain parts. So he went back, and I said, well, tell them Andrew Stane sends his love to all of them and to pass it on to anybody else I haven't mentioned. He came back the following weekend and he said, well, I gave you a message to all the people you mentioned. And he said, every one of them said, Andrew always swore he'd never be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, tell him the bug was in the blood and it couldn't be denied. And, well, then talking of actors and acting, I mean, everyone I speak to seems to rate Patrick Troughton very highly. Was, was that uh, your experience of him as an actor? Yes. Uh, I was only in the one thing with him. He was, he, he was the most professional. Well, I mean, I, I only worked with him and with John Pertwee, and that's rather unfair to John. But how should I put it? You would have a conversation with Patrick Troughton in which the subject under discussion was not Patrick Trout. <laughs> the same didn't apply to John Poetry. <laughs> I, I know where you're coming from. Um, and funny enough, Enemy of the World was, was Barry's first brush with Doctor Who, which was something that came to, he had a massive association with. Um, yes. And a relatively early directing job for him, because of course he'd been an actor. Yes. So, um, how did you? Was in those early days of him being a director, was he was he assured, or did that come later? Um, he'd gone through the um, training course for a BBC director, and uh, then, I, as you say, it was one of the first things he did was this Doctor Who, and as I say, he got me in as a short notice and I was astonished he, Barry was a very independent minded person and if he had an opinion about something he hadn't bought somebody else's ideas wholesale, it was all dependent on what he'd read or what he'd experienced or whatever the, the first year or two after he finished the BBC course he was the institution's man he was trotting out, crashing the unfunny jokes that happened to be in with the BBC. Um, and, and it was like dealing with a stranger. And then, of course, the true Barry asserted itself, and, and later on it was back to as it had been. But uh, he did get... And, and I worked with somebody who'd done a lot of work with the BBC, an actor... Um, Bob Arnold, that's right. Oh, I, I, I know, I knew Bob. I yes. worked with Bob. But I, I told him this anecdote and he said, it's quite extraordinary, that happens to all of them. 
everybody who goes in that way becomes the institution's man for a period. Interesting. One, something some, some other people said to me who worked with him a lot, um, like Jenny McCracken, who's on uh, uh, Carnival of Monsters with you, said that um, as a director and as a producer he was very different, and that we, we as Doctor Who fans all know Barry as being sort of very calm, very zen, and very um, uh, uh, thoughtful. But as a director, he could sometimes get quite fraught, which is a very different image mm. than the one we as Doctor Who fans have of him and our experience of him. Oh, well, yes. Uh, not Doctor Who, but another thing I did with him, uh, a children's uh, serial. And uh, they got some 16-year-olds who were very immature and they were sort of playing 13-year-olds. I mean, that's why they've been chosen, because they, they seemed a bit childish. But they couldn't take direction. And I saw Barry lose his rag with them, but good and proper. <laughs> and it, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'd known my uncle for a very long time, and I knew that he had a temper. He mostly kept it under control. But when, when you got a flash fire, by God, you experienced it. Those kids didn't know what hit Whereas uh, you, he... Uh, uh well, next time he employed you on Doctor Who, um, you won't quite know what hit you. Is that? Uh, but what did was Roger Delgado's laser beam that shrunk you into a, a, a oh, lunchbox-sized well, human being. Yes. Well, as I say, that, that was a CSO shot, and it was the first time Barry had used the technique. And um, I was lying on a blue rostrum with a blue background. And then across the other side of the studio there was the lunchbox with blue paper lining. And they superimposed the two pictures, me and the lunchbox. And I appeared to be floating in space. And so they had to cut out my shadow in brown paper and they put that in the lunchbox so that I fitted exactly on top of it. I don't know, if, do you think it's quite witty casting that you have most of your lines are about how much you hate boiled eggs? and your bald head is prominent because you've got the full beard as well. Yes, I don't yes. know if that... <laughs> oh, the thing about the boiled eggs was to make it seem more human. They, 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 they wanted to bring Doctor Who down to earth for a bit. And so there I was. And um, what was his name, the bloke playing my supervisor? Um, uh, well, it's Frank, uh, Christopher Burgess is your professor, and then Frank Mills is the director of the... The, the one who looks at your body and uh, you have a conversation yes. with Christopher Burgess about that that, world Christopher age. Burgess yeah and um, the, the, his line my I went on about not hating hard-boiled eggs and my wife would put them in my lunch my dinner <laughs> packet whether I would or no his, his line was I've never thought about it when it came to the shoot he said I've never considered it and I changed my line to, well, I consider it all the time. And Barry was very complimentary to me that I'd sort of been that quick thinking. But as I'd seen him, and not, when, not in television, but in, as a stage actor, pull people's chestnuts out of the fire when they fluffed a line many times. And I was, I was surprised that he sort of thought it was remarkable in me. Perhaps he thought I was a bigger bloody fool than I realised. <laughs>
So it was just a sadly a brief stint in uh, in Terror of the Autons, but you got to work with well, you got to get killed by Roger Delgado, who everyone seems to have remember with great fondness. Do you yes. remember working with um, him? Oh yes, I do. But um, damn it, I'm a fool. I should have thought I've I've got a drawing of Roger Delgado that I made on the back of a Doctor Who script. Oh so really? Him, yes. Oh, you're talking to a very fine artist here, you see. Oh, really? Oh, Terence, so you can attest to this. He draws things and makes pictures and uh, is not an amateur. (laughs) (laughs) At it. Uh, And a a sketch pad is being revealed. I never go without one. Mm. Is it always pencil and pen or do you paint as well? Um, I... I'm a bit wary of painting. I do watercolours, but my, I, my colour vision isn't perfect. I'm a little bit green, red-green colour blind. I have got scads and scads of sketchbooks going back... Well, I've got some going back to my school days, but I really started carrying a sketchbook seriously in 1960 when I was working at Whipsnade Zoo. And uh, I went on from there. Mm. And what did you do? What, what were you doing at Whipsnade? Well, it was a sort of gap year. Um, I'd been in the army. I'd been a reg- short service regular in the army. And that was a mistake. I came out very neurotic and, and tangled up. So I went and got a job where I was working with my body, getting a bit of a sweat on and sweating it out of my system. And it worked. In fact, I, I stayed on for two years at the zoo and it was after that I decided that I was what I wanted to do was be an actor so that's what then so then how did you did you train then or no straight into rep I got a job at Northampton rep as an assistant stage manager and again carried on from there I mean my parents my father was Geoffrey Staines who'd run York for many years they both advised me to go to drama school I was 25 then and I said no I'm sorry I've had three years of people telling me what to do I can't take any more of it I either go and make a fist of it and if I don't I'll drop out you know fine but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stand around pretending to be a tree yeah <laughs> so straight into rep and do you have any memorable what are your more memorable parts or experiences in, in the theatre um well, I got around a bit. Um, Northampton, Derby, Manchester Library Theatre, um, Perth, Ipswich. Trouble was, the reason, having been a soldier and having been a zookeeper and what have you, I realised I was homesick for the theatre. But what I was homesick for was the Theatre Royal York, which had been my playground. I mean, you know, I was the director's son, so I came and went as I chose. I mean, I, I understood theatre discipline. I didn't do anything improper. But I could go in and come out as, as I willed. And that's what I was missing. And so I got myself back into rep, and I never made the jump into anything bigger. Never got to the West End, never got... National Theatre, never got to Royal Shakespeare. And um, 
I had an agent once, once who got very impatient with me because I was content to do down among the wines and spirits. And um, then circumstances changed. The woman in my life developed cancer and I dropped out of theatre to look after her. And uh, that went on for about three years. And then she, she got better. And then I tried to get my back foot back in the door. Can't be done. All the people who knew my work had moved on. And, you know... Short memories in this business. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I get that. It's like, it's like um, female actors I know who've had a... Be- I mean, all it takes is having a baby sometimes. And yes. suddenly, you, you know... Yeah, nobody's employing you. You still have a very tough time. Actresses, yeah. as you say, reach middle age and post middle age. Yeah. It's half grinds in. Yeah. It's not it, fair, really. No. <laughs> even some of you have done extraordinary work. Um, and funny enough, you two were, were in a Doctor Who story that you, I guess you probably didn't meet on because in Carnival of Monsters, you're in the studio with. Michael Wisher and uh, Peter Halliday and oh, Leslie right. Dwyer and Cheryl Hall and you, Andrew, are on location on being the captain of a boat. Uh, Don't where... start me on that one. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'll do. <laughs> well, I have to say, when we did the DVD commentary of it, Terence Dix, the script editor, went, this actor's very good, it's not much of a part, but he does it very well and, and you, we, we have a couple of minutes eulogising your performance. Oh, that's very gratifying. No, the thing was, we went down to Chatham or Gillingham and we were in a hotel overnight, and then we went on board this old fleet auxiliary that was being used as a, this P&O steamer in the middle of the Bay of Bengal. And um, there I was in immaculate white ducks, got on board this old rust jack bucket. And they didn't get round to shooting me till the very end of the afternoon, and there was nowhere to sit down, and I didn't lean against a bulkhead or anything because it would besmirch my... I, I did eventually find that they brought some camp chairs on board and put them in the captain's day cabin. So I was able eventually to sit down, but it, it, I'd been on my feet for about an hour and a half before that happened. Because oh, you were in perfect white. Because I was in, yeah. in perfect white. And then we came to shoot the main thing, which was me up on the, on the bridge, and the first officer out on the forecastle with these drashings, I think they were, yes. coming up through the deck. But of course we couldn't see anything coming up through the deck, we were just accepting that that was there. And I had to shout down to him on the forecastle, and he had to shout back to me. We only had a couple of lines each, but this was in the open air with quite a stiff breeze blowing. They put the cameras on him, him, shouting back to me, and they put the cameras on me, hearing him. Then they had the cameras on me while I shouted to him. Then they took the cameras back to him, mm-hmm. responding to Did that bloody line about six times, and at the end of it I hadn't got any voice at all. <laughs> and, 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 oh, God, I was, I've never, ever been so exhausted as we did on that, that day. When I got home, I just was fit to go to bed and sleep for right like, clock round. And... Um, I hadn't done anything. <laughs> well, I had to shout. I had to shout some orders in Hindi to the Laskers in the crew, and and that 
all, all of this in the open air, all up on the bridge with this breeze blowing. I'm not surprised. And the other thing about that was when we went on board, there was a watchman. The, the, the ship was going, the BBC had it for 24 hours as a location. And then the next day she was being towed away to the shipbreaker's yard. And she's been lying in the midway for God knows how long, which was why she was in such a filthy state. She'd had an, a watchman on board. And when we came out in our boat and our tenders, John got off first, went up, met this bloke coming off and said to him, and I learned this from Barry afterwards, John said, any rabbits, which apparently is naval slang for any item you can half inch, you can put in your pocket, not anything. And the bloke said, oh yes, probably. I don't know, but she's going to the shipbreaker's yard to see what you can find. So whenever John was not being shot, he was prowling around the ship, and he found a ship's compass. Not the ship's compass, but a reserve that was in a locker at the back, uh, hidden away somewhere. So he gets a screwdriver and <laughs> smuggles it away. And we're on, the way, we're on the verge of leaving the ship at the end of the day's shooting. And suddenly the, the floor manager comes rushing down the gangway. And there's a lot of chanter, chanter, chanter. And John rather reluctantly sort of opens up and produces this thing from under a sack. It has to, that, 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 was, that was nominated. That, that, that was something they knew about. Mm-hmm. It had to go back. And apparently, um, John, John, he was a buccaneer, that man. He really was. <laughs> and I, I don't know what else he managed to get smuggle off that ship, but, but he, didn't get the, he didn't get the ship's compass. Didn't get the compass. Um, well, and then... It was John's final story that uh, Barry recon- sort of convened you all. As we mentioned, Christopher yes. Burgess earlier, he yes. was he was one of your gang as well. That's right. Um, under the thrall of John Durth and his nasty spiders, for for John Pertwee's valedictory shindig, um, That's right. where where you and Terry were were both both together, but not. Um, but you had to, as you said before, we started recording because of Terry's beard. Well, Barry said he couldn't tell us apart. We both had spectacles. We both had, both had black beards in those days. Yes, um, I've forgotten entirely that. Yeah. But you were the one that drew the short straw. Well, he he, he sort of pulled rank because we were related. <laughs> <laughs> when questioned about it afterwards, he said, "Well, I've known Barry. I've known Andrew a long time." And they were quite nice parts because you get you get oh, a, yeah. a, a fair bit to do. Yes. I mean, a lot of it's running around and zapping people, but... Uh... What was Terry... Terry somebody, the stuntman? Terry Walsh. Terry Walsh. I, ha- I had a, a thing at the end where I had to whop somebody with a, a, an iron bar. It was, it was actually foam rubber. Mm. And I did it, and Terry Walsh took me on one side and said, you're not hefting that as if it had a lot of weight in it. I should assume you've never hit anyone with an iron bar before. Well, no, I have. That's true. <laughs> Practiced. I, I, did, I did say to Barry, did, how did the shot come out? He said it was always oh, too quick, didn't show, didn't show at all. I, I remember being rather horrified. Now, what was the other bloke's name? The bloke who played the sergeant. Oh, John Levine. That's right. 
And we were sitting in the canteen, sort of, over a cup of coffee, reminiscing rather like this. And he had an anecdote from the previous year's break between them. And John Pertwee was doing a personal appearance somewhere and invited him along. And then said to him, look, I'm going to be doing my one-man routine. Come up on the stage with me and, and we'll play off each other. And John said, I couldn't, I couldn't tell him I'd never been in front of a live audience before. And he said, I was terrified. Of course, he got, it went, went off very well because John knew how to feed him and pick up things he wasn't saying. <laughs> and I said, well, how the hell did you, how the hell do you get a plumb part like this? And you'd never done your apprenticeship in rep. And he said, uh, and he started off as an extra. And some directors had sort of liked the cut of his jib. Douglas Canfield, essentially, had, had, had cast him as a monster in a couple of things and, mm. and, and just, yeah, just liked him. Yes. I felt a little bit sore about that, actually, I must admit. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in people sweating at the beginning. Well, that hunger fuels you a bit, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Um, and so outside of um, Doctor Who, I mean, there's only a couple more TV credits, so we, we mostly kept busy in, in, in theatre. I, I, I was a, a rep actor. And as I say, there was the, the business about my, my other half being ill and my drop, dropping out to look after her. As I say, I tried to get my foot back in the door and I didn't succeed. But also, at some stage afterwards, I suddenly thought... This isn't fun like it used to be, and I don't think I want to do it anymore. And that's when I dropped out, dropped it out permanently. I didn't know that. No. And so, what did you do after that? Uh, I got myself on the books of an agency, Universal Arts, and for 20 years they sent me round to live in people's houses when they were away on holiday or they were away on business. Remember that? Yes, yes. He's been and visited me at one of the places. Go around, help him walk the dog. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes. And um, it didn't pay any better than being an actor, but it was uh, it was interesting. But again, a very sort of eclectic and no no two gigs are the same. I oh, guess. absolutely not. And I reached the stage relatively early on where I got on. I got on with people's dogs, that was the big thing. I, having been at Whipsnade Zoo, you couldn't phase me with an animal. That's famous last words. I nearly got phased once or twice. But um, people said, oh, I, we want Andrew back again. And I built up quite a stable of regulars. Um, there was a big manor house in Essex, which I used to go to regularly at one time. And then some people in Chelsea, that's where you came. And, nice house. Very nice house. They've sold it. Oh, really? They've gone to live down in Hampshire. Yeah, there's some nice pictures in there, isn't there? Yes, it's a fascinating place. Enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, that. And um, and so, Doctor. I mean, you, uh, you've done a couple of Doctor Who things. You did. Is, is it quite? Um, does it does it surprise you? Does it interest you that, that people still sort of get in touch about? You know, four ten jobs. I think your matters are hatters. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's what, 40 years ago? 
You don't know why it sustains such I an don't, interest? I don't, just don't understand it. Well, nonetheless, it has uh, got us to convene here, and a charity of your choice will be the beneficiary, so would you like to nominate your charity, Andrew? National Association of Laryngectomy Clubs. We're here to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans who will be listening to this podcast? Grow up. <laughs> There's a smile beneath that Absolutely. faux curmudgeonly outburst, but Absolutely. that was a fascinating chat. Andrew Staines and Terence Lodge, uh, thank you very much. Oh, that was okay for you, then. That was great. I don't know. <laughs> I have no training. That's a lovely interview. That was really nice, Andrew. Thank you. My thanks to Andrew and to Terence Lodge. Andrew's charity is uh, the NALC, the National Association of Laryngectomy Clubs. So I'm going to have to spell that. It's uh, www.laryngectomy. .org.uk, laryngectomy.org.uk. Google that. Uh, My thanks to Ben Jolly, actually, for uh, giving me Andrew's address initially. Um, Ben has been a great help to this podcast. Um, Please keep donating to the charities. And if you have an extra penny to spare, um, I have a virgin giving page, not uh, not just giving, virgin giving page for my run that I'm doing for the Psoriasis Association. Uh, I'm trying to raise a few quid for that. And as a result, I'm going to ring life, risk life and limb by doing exercise, which is something I've never really done, uh, and, and running 10 kilometres, I mean, in, you know, in a row without stopping. So it might well be the last thing I ever do. So that's worth a couple of quid on uh, uh, Toby Heddock's Virgin Giving page uh, eh, 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 uh, to raise money for the Psoriasis Association. Uh, but as ever, no obligation and uh, keep if you are, and I hope you are enjoying these podcasts and there'll be another one uh, next time. Till then, um, I'm, I'm going to do some lunges or something. Bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Torchwood. Zone 10. It all started with that sound. Broadcast from a point 62 miles above Siberia. A single pulse over and over again at exactly the same interval. Never stopping for over 40 years. NASA always said it was something built by the Russians. A satellite of some sort. The Russians said it must be something built by NASA. It had many names over the years. The blip, the bloop, the squidge. In Russian, they simply call it pulse. I've been working on it for so long in my own time, trying to unravel it, find out what it meant. Then one night, I cracked it. A message that had been baffling the world for over four decades. Translate. Big finish. We love stories.